Welcome back to OHSU's eMigCast. This is Mari Namura, and I'm coming to you from Enterprise, Oregon, where I've been learning about emergency medicine in a rural setting. Since working here, I've found that not all doctors who practice in the ED are trained as emergency medicine physicians. In fact, most of them are generalists who work in the clinic, the hospital, and the emergency department. But I wouldn't say they're typical family medicine doctors either. My partner one time, he did a hysterectomy in the morning. He delivered a baby at noon, and he put in a temporary pacemaker at night, and he said he had a really full day of family practice that day. For these stories from Rural Practice and More, stay tuned. Outside of the classic urban emergency department today. So before we get started, indulge me for just a minute so I can do some context setting. I'm in Enterprise, Oregon, a 2,000-person town, which is the largest one in Wallowa County. It borders Washington and Idaho in the far northeastern pocket of Oregon. It boasts some of the tallest mountains in the state and the deepest canyon in the country. And walking into the hospital, you'll find ranchers and organic farmers, you'll find the local chocolatier and microbrewers, and you'll find weekend tourists along with people who've lived here for generations. The hospital, Willowa Memorial, serves all 7,000 residents in Willowa County, which are spread over 3,100 square miles. That makes it about two people per square mile, which is part of why it's called the Frontier. It's also because the next closest hospital for more specialized care is in the Grand, which is over an hour's drive away, or can be even longer through this winding icy canyon on your way there. Willowa Memorial also has 24-hour physician coverage at the emergency department, which makes it a level 4 trauma center. The closest level 2 trauma center is in Boise, which is a 4-hour drive, and the closest level 1 trauma center is in Portland, which is 6 hours away. And both of those are far enough that they try to use life flight whenever possible to get patients to care. Today I'm talking to one of the local docs who's been here for the entirety of his career in the clinic, the hospital, and the emergency department. Okay, my name is Scott Seavey. I'm an internal medicine doctor, and I've been practicing in Willowa County for uh, over 30 years. I thought Dr. Seavey would be a good fit for this podcast, based both on his years of experience as well as his legendary storytelling. In addition to medical tales, it's not uncommon to have a conversation with Dr. CB that starts with, well, the thing about bears is, or concludes with, and that's why you never try to kill a skunk with a tractor. I sat down with him in his home as we talked about the emergency department as it is right now, as well as changes generally in medicine throughout Dr. CB's career. I started off by asking him a little bit about his role and what was available at the hospital where he worked. And did you know when you moved out here that you'd be working in emergency medicine as well? Yeah, I did. I wanted to be all things to all people, and and working in the emergency room is something that um, was required when we came out here. You had to, if you were on the medical staff, you were required to to uh, work in the emergency room as well. Do you have any sense on a given day about how many people would come in? Well, um, on the weekends, usually you get... Um, on a Saturday and Sunday, you'd have, usually have 25 to 30 
Yeah. And how many beds do you have in this emergency room? There, well, there's a, a trauma room with two beds, and there's um, an exam room with one bed, or two exam rooms with one bed each, and there's a decontamination room that we can use as an exam room also. Is that a total of five beds? Right. And what level of services do you have for labs and imaging? Mainly ultrasound, CAT scan, x-ray. One day a week, there's a van that comes in that has an MRI scanner. Since it's just once a week, the MRI is mostly used for outpatients who can be scheduled, rarely by the emergency department. And a quick recap, we have an internist come EM doc in a five-bed hospital with 25 to 30 patients in a given weekend. There's enough labs and imaging to get by, but it's not what you'd expect at a larger setting ED. What's kind of a rough summary of the types of things that you'd handle on day-to-day -day in the emergency room here? Well, we see everything here once. Everything you see anywhere else, but we don't have the volume that you would have somewhere else. I mean, um, lately we've been getting a lot more motorcycle business up here because this has become known as a place to ride motorcycles. And so we're getting a motorcycle wreck about twice a week now, which is different than it used to be. Uh, we once studied our horse and cow injuries and found them to be more severe and more numerous than our car wrecks. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true now or not, but a lot of uh, ranching type of problems. Um, but we get everything once. Uh, it used to be we saw lots and lots of sick kids because... Before that Haemophilus B vaccine came out, kids would be sick with meningitis and epiglottitis and ear infections, and you'd see, you know, two or three really sick kids a day in the wintertime. But once that vaccine came out, we rarely see sick kids. Most of the time we see them when they have cuts and bruises and injuries and that sort of thing. Um, since we don't have really any specialists here, and we do have a surgeon, but he doesn't he doesn't take call, and so if he's here, great. If he's not here, then we just deal with it like we have for many years. Um, but if we see something that we can't handle here, obviously we have to transfer them out. And one of the biggest problems is trying to find doctors that will accept our patients in transfer. Luckily, with trauma, that's not a problem because of our trauma agreement with St. Alphonsus. St. Alphonsus is a level two hospital in Boise that has an agreement to accept any trauma transfer from Wallowa County. With uh, sick patients or orthopedic patients, sometimes it can be hard to find someone who will accept these patients. For instance, we don't, we don't pin hips. We have a lot of elderly people and we have a lot of broken hips here. Uh, we have a lot of broken bones and it's hard to find someone who will actually accept these patients. General surgery we can do here, but it, we don't really have a big ICU capacity here. So if someone looks like they need surgery and they're, and they're going to be very sick or have a lot of high risk, we like to send them out for surgery, and sometimes it's hard to find someone that will accept them also. Um, I don't know why that is. It's kind of changed through the years. And you've described some things to me that are... Um... There are things that you've had to do because you either have to do it now or it doesn't happen at all. Could you describe some of those now? Well, yeah, a lot of things that you see here you have to deal with, whether you're comfortable with it or not. You know, for instance, I know there's there's criteria that say, well, you should you should put in so many chest tubes to be confident doing that. 
Well, if you're here and someone has a hemopneumothorax, you've got to do it whether you've done 20 that year or not. So, you know, we, we do them sporadically, and I've done quite a few, and I feel fairly competent doing it, but, but really, you know, we don't have the volume that you would have in a big city. You know, years ago, I've done all sorts of procedures on people. We, we've done peritoneal taps, and we've done chest tubes. I've done one um, tracheotomy. That was an emergency. And the man survived, but I was pretty scared during the whole time. But, uh, you know, that sort of thing, you just have to, you have to do it because there isn't anybody else that's going to do it for you. And if they're going to die before you can transfer them out, you just have to do it. Do you have any sense of kind of what percentage of patients you'd send by ambulance or life flight? It all depends on where they're going, mostly. Uh, we try to use the ambulance if they're going a short distance, like... Um, 80 miles, maybe 100 miles. Um, if they have to go longer distance, like 200 to 300 miles, then we try to transfer by air because it's a lot uh, faster and easier to on our crews. And we only have two ambulance crews, so if one's gone, then we only have one. How long does it take to make a call about having to transfer somebody? You mean from the time you see the patient? Or maybe even the time that you hear about them on... The radio. Well, there are certain things we can't handle at our hospital. And if the EMTs determine that there's a bad car wreck with multiple fractures and it looks like they need to go to Boise, sometimes they'll actually transfer them there from the scene on the helicopter. Uh, most of the time, they'll come to our hospital and be reassessed, and then we'll determine from there whether they need to be transferred or not. I've read that things like congestive heart failure, whether you're seen rurally or in a city, people tend to do about the same, no matter which kind of doctor they see. What are types of things that you feel like people don't do as well at if they're here? Well, I think I think we give pretty good care from a medical standpoint, but for mainly surgical and surgical specialties is, is where we have trouble. Um, for instance, you know, obviously if someone needs neurosurgery, we don't do that here. If someone needs their coronary artery stented, we don't do that here. That's been a big change because 30 years ago, it was actually considered dangerous to to do a heart catheterization within six weeks of a heart attack. And so we rode them out here, you know, you gave them, we gave them dopamine drips and we gave them nitroprusside drips and, you know, when I first came here, we did invasive monitoring with Swan-Gans catheters, and we found that it really didn't make much difference. I think everybody else found that out, too, so it's not really used anymore. But uh, the concept of thrombolysis came about actually uh, up in Spokane. Dr. Marcus DeWood was the first one to really go into surgery with his patients and actually see the clot in the artery, and so that's where this concept first came about. And then in the early to mid-80s, we started doing thrombolysis, and that's a little scary out here because we don't have any uh, way to deal with complications. Luckily, we haven't had a lot of complications. We used to keep people on the respirator here for up to two weeks, and we used to have um, two or three respiratory therapists, but that's changed, and now we don't like to keep people on the respirator more than just a few hours, so most patients on respirators we send out. Um, you know, we send out, of course, a lot of things that need neonatal 
ICO and neonatal care. Uh, since my specialty is internal medicine, I've I've seen a lot of kids and I've taken care of a lot of kids, but I I don't really take care of infants and neonates as much. And luckily, I have partners that are pretty good at that, and they come in and help me when when that needs to be done. What do you think is the most unique part about working in emergency medicine in a rural setting? Uh, having to just mainly rely on yourself more than anything else. You know, you don't have a big institution with a lot of people to back you up. You're basically, sometimes you're the only doctor in the county, and you just have to rely on yourself and what you have about you. I remember one time, this woman came in, and she had her hand caught in this in this um, mixer. It was one of those big, heavy-duty mixers, and it bangled her fingers, and we didn't have any way to cut her hand out of this mixer. But I knew that there was a carpenter that lived across the street, and he had bolt cutters in his toolbox. So I went across the street and got the bolt cutters and cut her hand out of the mixer just because I knew who lived across the street. <laughs> oh, man. And that brings up a good point. You know a lot of people walking in the door. How is that to practice versus in an urban setting? Well, most of them are our friends and neighbors, and I actually enjoy that myself. And in fact, when I needed surgery, I came to the hospital because I knew they'd fight for me, and I wasn't just a number. And so we know them. They're friends and neighbors of ours, and, and I think that makes for better care, and it, it makes for, uh, you know, more continuity of care. We know usually what medicines they're on and what medical problems they have before they even come through the door. So from that standpoint, and generally I'd say most of our business is local. Uh, in the summer we get tourists, but most of the business is local during most of the year. And, and most of them are patients that we we know or people that we know. And they either come in injured or they come in with chronic illness that's getting worse and various things like that. So... To me, I kind of took an interest in trauma, and I go to the trauma meetings, and I took my first ATLS course in 1981, but uh, the trauma isn't, um, it isn't rocket science, and you teach anybody trauma, even an internist, but what people really need to learn is their internal medicine and pediatrics, because that's, that's really important in the emergency room. So, you know, the trauma is kind of dramatic and you get to stick needles in places and cut cut open things. But really, the internal medicine and the pediatrics are what you really need to learn. So that would be my recommendation. <laughs> and you're biased as an internist. <laughs> I am. I am. But, but you know, even even I can do the trauma. It's just a, you follow through the, the guidelines and it's pretty well worked out what you do. Sometimes you just have to man up and do it, even though it's scary, you know. So to summarize what we've learned so far about rural emergency care, everything can happen at least once. Even if you're in a smaller setting, you'll still need a broad base of knowledge. As with anywhere, you'll see a reflection of the society and the injuries that come into the hospital. So in a rural place like Enterprise, you're more likely to find injuries from horses or cattle than gunshot wounds or stabbings. When folks come in, you're more likely to know them and their medical history if you live in a small town. When folks need care beyond what's available at a rural hospital, it can be difficult to find an accepting provider on the other end, and this can be very frustrating. Most medical management can happen rurally. 
but you'll see the procedures requiring surgical specialties being transferred out. Therefore, a strong background in pediatrics and internal medicine can really help a rural physician. There's generally the common trend of self-reliance and the ability to make quick judgment calls about the things that you can handle in-house, the things you need to transfer, and the things that just need to get done when there are life and limb at risk. And with limited resources, you'll see ingenuity in those things that just need to get done, in some instances even involving the neighbor's tool sheds. And now some comments on trending topics in rural emergency care, as well as some general recommendations for people interested in emergency and people interested in rural medicine. What's the increasing role of telemedicine? Yeah, through the years I've seen a lot of this come and go, basically. And um, years and years ago we had a six-foot antenna, circular antenna dish on top of the hospital, and it was supposed to be hooked up to Portland, and we were supposed to be able to show uh, skin sores to dermatologists and various things, but that never actually worked out. It it didn't function very well, and when it did function, we couldn't find anybody on the other end to look at anything. Um, the ways I've seen that have been very helpful are, A, the radiology. Radiology is a field where, you know, it's mostly electronic now anyway, and radiologists could actually lay on the beach and read his x-rays on the beach now, you know. So that's really helped us, I think. Um, child psychiatry. We have a child psychiatrist that does telemedicine, and that's been very helpful because, you know, we're not big enough to have a child psychiatrist in this area otherwise. Um, strokes. Providence Hospital's been big on the stroke and stroke robot, and so we can get a stroke neurologist right away to actually look at the patient. The problem I've found with this basically is that you're still responsible for the patient um, no matter what the stroke robot says and the stroke neurologist, because one time I came in and the stroke neurologist had apparently seen the patient by the robot before I even got there. And I wasn't very slow either. And he'd already ordered strepto or no TPA to be given to the patient. And I came in and I examined this patient and I disagreed. I did not think she was having a stroke. And so I countermanded that order and wouldn't let them give the TPA. Well, it turned out I was right. She wasn't having a stroke. But they'd already mixed up the TPA, which was quite a lot of money, which the hospital didn't get reimbursed for. So you're still responsible for the patient, no matter what the stroke neurologist may say. And I think you still have to use your judgment as well. The, the good thing about this is the stroke neurologists are willing to accept the patient and take them in transfer to Portland, so you're not left high and dry with a patient that you're, you've been treating but don't have anywhere to send. So they will do that. I think there's some validity for the, for the telemedicine for strokes, and I think there's a lot of validity for telemedicine for psychiatry and for um, radiology. I guess I'm, you could say, cautiously optimistic or maybe a little bit skeptical. I don't know. <laughs> What's the role of mid-level providers here? Well, we've had mid-level providers off and on since 1981, basically. And um, we've had both nurse practitioners and PAs, and we've always found them to be very helpful. Uh, the one problem with the mid-level practitioners, 
there has to be a physician available 24 hours a day to take call. And so they didn't really help us a lot in the emergency room because we had to be available anyway and we couldn't go anywhere. So we just as soon do it. And we've seen the rise of electronic health records across the country. Mm-hmm. And how how is that given in Lowell County? Um, what I found is what helps me most of all is a one-paragraph concise note written by the physician that really tells me what's going on. What I found is that there's usually uh, six to eight pages that have been cut and pasted from days and days and days on these records, and it takes me forever just to find that one concise paragraph that tells me what's really going on. Sometimes I can never find that paragraph. Just a quick wrap-up on this before recommendations. Telemedicine? helpful for radiology, psychiatry, and stroke neurology. All others, TBD. Mid-level providers can be helpful, but since they require a 24-hour physician be available in the rural setting, they don't tend to be as helpful in ERs, more a clinic basis. In EHR, well, this might be the same everywhere. It is more helpful to just find one concise paragraph. So if you're referring back to a rural physician, that's really what they're looking for although that's probably the same for physicians everywhere. So you're talking to people who are medical students who are interested in emergency medicine. So any advice from a career where you've touched all aspects of medicine? Well, I came into it through internal medicine and office practice, and that's much different from what they would go into it as they go into a dedicated emergency room residency. The thing about emergency medicine is you're not going to get bored, and you'll miss out on the relationships you build with patients. But on the plus side, you know, you'll, you'll have shift work and you'll have free time. And, um, you know, you, you will get to see a lot of different things. In some respects, emergency medicine doctors don't want to shut any doors. You know, they don't want to shut the door on the OB and they don't want to shut the door on the internal medicine. They don't want to shut the door on the pediatrics. They want to learn a little bit about all this so they can deal with it in the emergency room. So they kind of want to be generalists in some respects, I think. And do you have any particular pitch that you'd like to share for being, becoming a rural doctor? 25 years ago, I wouldn't have recommended it because, you know, it was all work and no play. And there was just, you know, like I said, 120-hour weeks that got to me. But things have changed. And I think that particularly in Oregon with the Oregon Rural Health Bill and with the training of residents in rural areas, and, uh, you know, I, I have lived what I wanted to do. I mean, my dream was to be a small-town doctor, and I lived my dream. And there were certainly a lot of advantages to it. I knew all my neighbors. I, uh, you know, I could drive to the hospital without meeting another car. I was all things to all people, and I could, and at times I had to do everything there was. But, uh, but the, the workload was too much early on. Now I think there's enough doctors and with the onset of rural health clinics and federally qualified clinics and various other entities, the burden has come off the doctors. And in some respects with the, with the physician's assistants and nurse practitioners, so that I think that it can be a very good life for people. It just depends on what they want. See, I wasn't motivated by finances, and that's probably why I'm here, but... Um, if you just want to live a nice lifestyle and, and live in a rural area, it can be a pretty rewarding career as well. 
Yeah, it seems like it really has been. You've gotten to know all these patients over these years, and you've seen everything once. <laughs> yeah, you see everything once, and you have to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> Whether or not you're ready to. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. You're, you're welcome. Best of luck to your audience. There you have it, another episode of AMEGCAST. I hope you learned something about practicing rural emergency medicine. And all of us here at AMEGCAST want to thank you for downloading and listening. And if you have a moment, providing us feedback, either by emailing us directly at emigcast at gmail.com, or you can write a comment in our comment section. We know you're all busy people, or as Dr. CB would say, You know, because when I have a busy day, and I'm busy, I don't want to drop everything I'm doing, go on the computer for 20 minutes. Thanks again, and see you next time. Thanks for listening to eMigCast.com. This podcast represents only the views of its producers and does not represent the views of OHSU or any affiliated institutions. And while we make every effort to broadcast correct information, we're still learning, and we ask that our audiences keep in mind that medicine is a constantly changing science and art. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, who we'd like to thank for their continuing support. We do not accept money from any other sources. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.